innovation is not about technology. It's not about all of the buzzwords that we hear. It's about delivering a true transformative experience into your organization or wherever you are that actually drives change in a meaningful way. And that requires connecting with the human side of people, not necessarily focusing on the system side. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. (laughs) We're already off to a good start today. Rebecca Call had a plan to be a doctor, but life got in the way and she went down an entirely different and windy path through chemical engineering, public policy, information systems, and reinsurance. Oh yeah. And together, these all led her right back to a different way of contributing to the advancement of medicine. Today, Rebecca's Chief Innovation Officer at MD Anderson Cancer Center, where she's side-by-side with physicians delivering on the mission to end cancer as we know it. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Soonan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, Lisa. Oh, my Lord, David. (laughs) (laughs) Too much caffeine today, David. (laughs) We're just getting started. All right. So, um, here's the thing. Yes. You just wrote an amazing... um, a characteristically amazing blog post. Oh, um, but it was about, um, I think, a very relevant topic. You, you were talking, I guess you were on a panel in D.C., right? Yep. And they start off with the premise, well, if everyone wants transparency, why is it so hard to achieve? And what's with healthcare that that it jacks up the prices so much? <laughs> That's how the moderator started the conversation, just hoping to get through the next 45 minutes. And, and why don't you explain to the nice people out there how you <laughs> reacted? Well, it's so interesting because I think for me, I, you know, language, I really care about language and precision of language language to a certain extent. And I uh, was very acutely aware of the audience being a lot of policymaker folks. And, um, you know, the, the premise that everybody in healthcare wants price transparency is just not correct. I mean, it is the absolute number one business model to have the opposite of price transparency for most people in healthcare. And um, furthermore, um, the point was made uh, incorrectly, in my opinion, that Healthcare is the only industry where where prices are massively marked up in the in the hundreds or thousands of percents. Yeah, you give a number of examples. Yeah, and you know it's it's completely incorrect. It's the difference. I mean, the examples are like beer and pizza and bottled water and makeup and you know text messages and all of these things that we use every day are marked up massively in a similar in similar amounts. And I think what's the difference is not. The difference is the choice, the factor of what you could choose and not choose, and when you have health care, to which many people think people have, should have a right to, and certainly individuals who are sick need help, you don't have the same choice about getting, say, cancer treatment as you do about buying makeup. Right. Right. Oh, well, we'll include a link to that because um, I really hope everyone has a chance to read it. It's really uh, worthwhile. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate it. Um, so speaking of cancer treatment, um, Rebecca Call is on the show today. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thanks. We are so happy to have you here. And like many people who grew up in healthcare households, we know you had a plan to be a doctor. But in a way, your entire first entree to the field was foreshadowing of what you were to become. Tell us about the artificial lung lab you worked at. Uh, your first exposure to innovation. Yeah, so my it, it was right before I went to college. I worked in an artificial lung lab. Um, was really excited to have the opportunity um, to kind of have my first foray into healthcare, and um, you know, did your kind of normal 
uh, lab, te- lab tech type work, but I found it really interesting. And the big thing I learned in that lab was the people in that lab were not doctors. They were engineers, um, which started to expose me to the notion of engineering, which you don't normally get in high school education. I, I don't know that I knew that. Yeah, that's pretty intense. My gosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When you got to the point where medicine seemed like fun, uh, that was also a job. You also said that coincided, unfortunately, with the time with, with the time when the HMO era was in full swing. Um, I remember distinctly seeing a, an episode of St. Elsewhere at that time where they talked about this very issue. Previously on St. Elsewhere. The city has decided to sell St. Allegis. Now all of a sudden we're on the auction block. A health maintenance organization like yours could operate St. Allegis very profitably. The HMO is sending someone up from Baltimore to take inventory. Wow, that brings back memories. (laughs) I remember it distinctly because I too was working in managed care at that time. Right, so, you know, when you think about going into medicine, you think about the notion, I think most people think about the notion of making an impact. Um, but in the HMO era, what you started to see was the actual people caring for the patients weren't necessarily in control of the kind of care the patients were permitted to receive based on the insurance companies and affordability. Um, so it started to interest me more to think about that side of the equation to make an impact on how do we make care more affordable or influence the ability to deliver care as opposed to being the one to physically give it. That's so interesting because, you know, a a major take from the sort of the HMO era was it really was a conflict between sort of the physician autonomy, which is why a lot of people go into medicine, at least the idea of I'm going to be able to, um, you know, use... My, my my empathy, my my science, my 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 my, my intelligence to try to bring, um, you know, to, to try to meaningfully impact people's health. And I think it just takes a different mindset to look at the challenges, particularly those in the HMO era, and then to say, well, what can I understand about the context to make care more achievable? You know, it's it, it's just it's kind of like looking at the background versus what's in the front of a picture. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you hear a lot right now about how doctors are so frustrated with administrative and economic pressures. Are we back there again? Is it come full circle? I think it. I think it always has that. I mean, it's it's the pendulum effect. We always kind of go back and forth. Um, I think there's always going to be um, that kind of frustration, and I think we even have a new component entering in today's day and age of technology, where it's not only the economic pressures and the changes in the different payment models, which is, of course, a pressure, though I think to some extent, some of that pressure is a good thing because some of the value-based models are pushing us to do some some of the right things for patients. But we also have technology coming into play where technology is starting to make clinical recommendations and we have to reconcile what our human beings believe versus what the computers are seeing in the data. So now there's actually a new entrant into this equation of uh, driving how care is given. The robot overlords. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) When I hypothesized this 
this pendulum, I think we'll we'll see a new component of it in the future. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, certainly that is the rhetoric that goes around uh, for the people who are worried about AI and other things. Well, I think particularly when a lot of the AI models um, are so black box and, you know, when you have a recommendation that says do this or consider that and it seems to be coming out of the blue, you don't even necessarily have a context. I think it's really hard. And you know the data that went into it to begin with is crap. Well, I think it can be really challenging. And I think when, you know, when in general, you, there's least the conceit that you're trying to make physiological decisions, you're trying to do things based on some kind of understanding. And then here's something that says, oh, turn left, or, you know, sort of based mm-hmm. on, um, you know, uh, you, know the, you, you wish you were able to have some understanding of whether, you know, of uh, kind of how much confidence to have in a particular recommendation. And it, to make sure, because you do worry a lot about the, the, the artifacts and, uh, and, and whether or not you can have confidence. And there are probably circumstances that are more and less conducive to that. Hopefully we'll get into that. And I think and I think it's also, you know, am I missing something? So I always joke in today's day, you know, I use my GPS to go everywhere. And I always joke that I follow my GPS off a cliff just because I just assume it knows better. Right. <laughs> <laughs> my husband almost did that yesterday, actually. And I was like, where are you going? Uh, it was so funny. Um, so you <laughs> majored in chemical engineering in college and, and then got bored with it, which uh, I can only imagine, and did a major <laughs> shift towards the public policy side of engineering, which is something I hadn't really heard of before in that context. And you said you did your senior project on the simulation of chemical weapon attacks. <laughs> um, but we're really more focused on, on the, the human than the tech response. Can you explain that? What is the public policy side of engineering? Yeah, so what I started to get interested in was less, and, and my university had a double major only for engineers, that if you were an engineering student, there was a double major you could take up called engineering and public policy, which I took up. That sounds so cool. And the notion there was, is there are policy implications to anything we do technologically. So take this chemical weapons simulation initiative, which was a joint senior project between both the engineering schools and the policy schools, which was not only do you have to, if there was a chemical weapons attack, model the danger zones from an engineering standpoint of, you know, kind of using your dispersion models to understand where people would be in danger over what period of time, but you also have to consider what is your emergency response plan look like, what is your communication plan, um, and what are the implications for the future on how you prevent um, such things from happening and then respond in a more effective way. And when I did all of that, I found the policy side of it more interesting than developing out the dispersion models or doing the, the core engineering part of it. And have you seen, as in, as you've seen the natural or not so natural disasters occur around the world, have you seen examples of things where you thought, wow, they could have done that differently or better based on the, or, or the policy that came out of it was a, interesting to you in some way? Um, I mean, nothing specifically coming to mind, but I think the answer is yes. Um, I think we all always think that, but I think, you know, um, where I'll say kind of giving people the benefit of the doubt is it always looks easier from the outside Mm -hmm. than when you're in the middle of a response situation. I think the key to these kinds of situations when you really study it is kind of being able to do the homework in advance so that you're ready to respond so you don't find yourself on the spot having to make um, 
decisions out of lack of preparation. So you've said how that the um, uh, I, I think when you were chatting with Lisa about how the uh, the human response to a lot of these situations can be more interesting or unexpected than a tech response. That strikes me as so fascinating. Could you amplify on that? Um, so you know, I think um, maybe even in the context of the work you do now, you know, like. I know you're very much an advocate of human-centered design. Right. Yeah. So in the context of the work I do now, that I'm very big on that. Um, I actually just gave a talk on this yesterday, Um, which is that I am, you know, we spend so much time talking about technology, and I think that technology is not the point or shouldn't be the centerpiece. I think we first need to understand um, what people want. Um, and what our patients want. And, you know, one of the examples I gave yesterday was, you know, a situation where we had talked about automating uh, a check-in process at our hospital. And what we found was that wasn't the right thing to do, though you do it in airports, though you do it in hotels, and it might be natural to say, but when someone has cancer, they want a human being to greet them. They want a friendly face. Oh, I completely agree with that. That's mm-hmm. so that's so insightful. That's uh, that's absolutely right. And I, I just think there's all these automation efforts or all these <laughs> things where people are saying, "Oh, here, we'll we'll be able to I save a few." I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine walking to a hospital and like walk up to the machine and the damn thing never works, and then it prints out your label and you put it on your wrist like you're a piece of luggage. <laughs> I just can't even imagine. <laughs> no, but but I mean, I think there's a gradation of things. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, and the thing, and the thing is, it's like. Everything is contextual, right, which we have no problem doing that in the airport. In fact, we prefer it because it's efficient. But when you're in a hospital and you're sick, that's not what you want. So you have to contextualize to what what situation you're in and the fact that you're dealing with human beings. Hmm. So it's not one that's size so fits interesting. all. Um, so you found yourself kind of along the way in the late 90s, the emerging dot-com world's going on. You're in the sort of tech and public policy connectivity world. And lo and behold, uh, you find yourself a master's program that mixes all these things, tech and computers and business and policy. (laughs) That was at at Carnegie Mellon, right? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of, um, you know, going to Carnegie Mellon, obviously a tech school, um, it was all around me. And I was watching, you know, various people at the at the school start to take up jobs at startup companies and um, in this tech setting, and it started to become clear that technology was going to be the underpinnings of anything you did. So I was already knew that engineering wasn't going to be for me, though, of course, I was finishing out the program. I had already enrolled in a accelerated master's program with our public policy school to do a master's of um, public policy and management, and they created a new program that was interdisciplinary that integrated your business, your policy, and your technology together called a Master of Information Systems Management, really in response to the new market. So I shifted into that program um, instead of the Master's in Public Policy, kind of straight public policy. I shifted into this more interdisciplinary program and to uh, kind of round out my skill sets. Wow, that sounds so cool, doesn't it? It does, actually. I mean, it's so practical in a way, although... Ahead of the curve, too, right? I mean, like, these are... It, 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 took, it must have taken a certain amount of um, 
real insight on the part of both whoever designed the curriculum and on the part of you for going into it to realize that this is going to be sort of the issues that everyone was going to have be starting to wrestle with. Did you know that? Or was it more just you thought it was interesting? Um, I think both. I'd like to think I knew a little. I certainly thought it was interesting. Um, but it really was. It, it was it was the era where the word e-commerce was the buzzword. Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> if you remember back then, yep. everything uh, was yes. e-commerce. You know? Everything was e-everything. You still have pets.com, don't yeah. you? If yeah. I think back, I think <laughs> my specialization was. was in e-commerce. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that, that just was, that was the thing then. <laughs> but after all that, after all that and finding chemical engineering boring, you were able to really max out and go into reinsurance. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously. That was a little opportunistic. So I was working for Ernst & Young as a consultant, and I was um, indefinitely staffed at a reinsurance company. So ultimately, from a lifestyle standpoint, when I was getting married and sort of settling down, I just sort of shifted over to the client side, which was reinsurance, which, like I said, I think was more opportunistic than strategic. <laughs> but even then, you were undertaking a, what you call, I think, a digital transformation initiative, something that's very current uh, in the parlance right now. Was that sort of a precursor kind of opportunity to learn the types of things you're focused on today? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, it's funny, people ask me all the time, how do you get into a career of innovation? And at least in my experience, it's not something you deliberately do, you just, it just kind of evolves. So the first thing I did right out of school, through this, the first initiative, which was at this reinsurance company was called Business of the Future, which was doing a full scale digital transformation of the business. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that in a sense began the kind of rethinking the way we do business with a digital strategy. And was there anything about that experience or that work you did there that, you know, sort of taught you the good, the bad, and the ugly of what, you know, as you brought it to, to medicine, you know, what, what did you learn there? Um, I think, you know, first of all, in terms of skill sets, it was super valuable um, to understand from a change management, this, this will always be a useful skill in innovation because anything you do is helping people change from a cultural standpoint. That is the harder part of technology and innovation is the culture change to actually properly leverage technology. And in this organization, you know, the fact that re reinsurance aside, it was a huge change to ask people who did everything in writing to now automate the way in which they did their contracts, their claims, um, everything. And there was a lot of resistance to that change. So I think the biggest thing I learned is the beginnings of innovation, which is how to drive large-scale organizational change, and in this case, across four countries. What was the biggest blocker in terms of, because exactly, as usual, Lisa pointed out, there's nothing more current than these digital transformations of, of healthcare, of pharma. Um, we see that all, everyone's sort of trying to do it. Um, but it's, it's hard and it's, um, you know, it seems to me like one of the challenges is once people have a way of doing things, how do you persuade them that this isn't just the latest trendy initiative, but that there's some benefit to them of undergoing this? Yeah, I mean, and it's it, it's actually a step further than what you're saying. You need to convince them that, number one, they're not going to lose their job at the end of this because you've now 
picked their brain on how to how they do their job and you've automated it, um, which was an initial concern, which wasn't the intent because there's a new set of skilled jobs using the technology that takes people to the next level, but people get insecure about that. They also get worried, will they have the skill set to be moved into a new kind of job when they've been doing the same thing for kind of all of these years? So th- these are the kinds of issues. And then when you're moving to something new, this is sort of a more current observation than back then, you know, people feel that you are, in a sense, being critical of the way they've been doing it if you're bringing in a new way to do it better. And, and that's not really the case, really, in innovation. If you have a new tool in your tool belt, now you can do things differently. If you didn't previously have that tool, it's not because you were doing something wrong. It's because you didn't have the tool. So what's the key to getting the buy-in? I mean, it's, it's such a current issue. I'm, very, I'm, I'm really curious about it. What, what works? What works the best? I mean, you know, obviously there's the softer relationship building skills, but largely as you build these relationships, it's giving ownership of the idea of the initiative to the people who are driving it forward. So in all of my years of innovation, I don't own any of it. And it's not my idea and it's not my initiative. It's me helping someone bring their initiative forward. And I think if the person feels that it's theirs, there's a, a different level of buy-in and willingness to see it through to success. So one of the things I like about you is you have, in part, driven your career around, you know, thinking what you want to do for your family and then go finding the right job from there. And so I understand you grew up in Pittsburgh, and when you decided you wanted to start your family, you went back to Pittsburgh and then found this amazing job at UPMC. Um, where you were leading innovation and and essentially became an intrapreneur, somebody who created companies really ahead of its time. I mean, UPMC, I think, as a health system, was doing this way ahead of most others. Tell us about that and, and like, Stentor and A-Life and some of the experiences you had there. Yeah, so when I came to UPMC, UPMC was starting a new department called Strategic Business Initiatives, and this was a reaction to kind of the Stentor um commercialization, whereby UPMC wanted to take a larger stake in its commercial ventures. I think, you know, by the time Centaur was successful, UPMC had more of a minority stake. And the notion was, let's create a more dedicated effort to kind of um, be more involved and really fund some of our own things. So I worked in that division, looking at internal and external opportunities and came to an external opportunity that I thought was really interesting with a company called A-Life Medical, who did computer-assisted medical coding powered by natural language processing in the ambulatory space. And we formed a joint venture to bring that to a new level of complexity, which is taking it from a single document, single specialty to the inpatient space, which is across multiple documents, diagnoses, period of time, um, to really kind of use the computer to understand a unified diagnosis. Um, so I, you know, had the opportunity to manage that joint venture. Um, one of the things we were committed to at UPMC was building up the Pittsburgh region and bringing jobs to uh, Pittsburgh. So we, even though it was a California-based company, we formed the joint venture in Pittsburgh and built the development team in Pittsburgh to build the inpatient product. So we built it deployed it across UPMC, saw a $21.5 million a year 
value proposition operationally um, through the deployment. So that was a big success. And really, at that stage, laid the foundation for A-Life Medical, who was at the stage of their um, business where they wanted to um, sell the business, start to kind of package up to sell the business. So we ultimately sold our interest to A-Life or sold our interest back to A-Life to put the joint venture back in, who then subsequently sold the company to Optum. So that was um, a big success story, which sort of launched my career as starting the Technology Development Center at UPMC, whereby UPMC asked me to come back and do the A-Life experience at scale. So it's interesting because it sounds like that initiative, very successful initiative at UPMC that continues on to this day, was really technology-driven. Um, like, we have this good technology. How do we go make a company out of it? How do we go find a use for it? Is that is that right? Um, you know, yes and no. What I did do in that process, I said we were evaluating the notion. So the company kind of came to us um, with the idea and... I went down to the medical coding department, actually sat with um, health information management and watched people code and watched, you know, learned all about the, what was happening there to make sure that this was something that really would change the business. Um, But then kind of, you know, embarked on running the company and, you know, at its core, a technology company. So, yeah, I mean, I think it, it did evolve to a more technological role. Which I think is interesting because I think it is a contrast in some ways to your next role, which is at MD Anderson Cancer Center, where you're now the chief innovation officer. And I think, you know, this this organization's initiatives on um, innovation and company creation and the like are more mission driven than technology driven. Is that is that the case? That's very much the case, and this is kind of an evolution of my philosophy or learnings about innovation and the role of being a leader in innovation, whereas I started my career in innovation really kind of thinking about technology, kind of moving more towards monetization of technology um, with a revenue diversification focus, and then when I came to MD Anderson, we kind of flipped that model on its head because our goal was completely mission-driven. How do we eliminate cancer? And the way to do that and really innovate at scale starts with designing strategies and visions for kind of a new way of delivering care. And then at the end of it all, circling back to say, now that I've designed a vision, how do I enable it with technology? But that's really only the last mile. Technology comes into play in the last mile of designing the vision. So now the whole model of innovation, at least as I define it, is completely different, starting with vision and strategy and eventually arriving at technology enablers. I'm fascinated by the role of um, of the um, sort of the of an innovation officer, of the chief innovation officer, um, how innovation sits within a company or an organization whose whole job is to be innovative is, is, is so challenging. In pharma, which is different from where you are, um, everyone had – I think there's been a miserable history of, of, quote, innovation centers where basically, you know, it's more or less where like kind of good ideas – It's like a placeholder or a parking lot for things where people go, oh, do this. It's completely peripheral to the actual action and what 
what is counts at most companies. And so it's sort of like, oh, here, work on this. And it sort of happens peripherally. They fund it. They do all this stuff. But it really is not a center of power, and it's kind of away from the main mission. I can imagine it being a little bit different um, at, at a, uh, you know, a cancer center. But how do you how do you is your goal to sort of how do you integrate with the day-to-day work that people are doing so they feel like it's a value add and not sort of like this peripheral thing that's happening on the side? Yeah. And, well, first of all, it's about positioning. So when I think about myself and my team as innovation, we aren't the innovators. Um, we are facilitators of innovation. We are managing the process of innovation, which is bringing innovators across various areas and kind of connecting the dots across them to make the whole greater than the sum of the parts. It's never one idea that we move forward. It's usually the summation of many people's ideas that actually is going to be something more transformational once you put it all together and people work together. So collaboration is a big thing. Now you ask, how do we integrate ourselves? We're very tightly integrated with our operations, and every time our operations teams have a big problem, um, and it could be it, it rain, the type of problem rain, wildly ranges, they immediately call us and say, "Can you help us solve this problem?" And we're the team that gets brought in to investigate to understand what the real problem is and what the root cause is, and to design the solution. And the solution is typically a combination of um, operational things, facilities things, process things, cultural things, culture is a very big one, and technological things all put together into a broader broader transformation. But our we we in a sense are the problem solvers, not the idea slash Technology. But is there an example where your ability to sort of see across the institution and to bring groups together have had an impact that folks didn't see because they were in their individual silos? I think that that, that happens most of the time. Um, and, and usually what problem we're brought in to solve isn't the, isn't the only problem or isn't the real problem to be solved. Um, you know, once when we first come in, I'll give you an example. Early on at MD Anderson, we were brought in um, because there was the notion that we were out of space in our infusion center. There weren't enough chairs. Um, so they wanted to create more space, but we didn't necessarily have more space. So I was brought in to take a look at it. And I know you're thinking to yourself, how is space an, an innovation issue? Double-decker <laughs> chairs. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. So I, um, <laughs> but it's a problem to be solved. So we went down and we looked at it, and there was never a time of day that there wasn't an empty chair. Um, but we had a waiting room full of people. And so the problem was not that we didn't have space. The problem was a matter of flow and why we couldn't get those people into those empty chairs. Right? And then... What that has you do is then go out and talk to some of those upstream functions. So when we saw people come up to the desk, it was, you know, your orders aren't signed yet, or your labs aren't ready yet, or your drugs aren't mixed, or we don't have a nurse, which brings you across the institution to go to the clinics and see what's happening with orders, go to the pharmacy and see what's happening with the way in which drugs are prepared, go to the labs to see, you know, what that process looks like, because the solution is the whole picture, right? And the solution, in the end, 
when you reframe that problem, the problem has to do with patient experience and how do we deliver the best experience to our patients and minimize waiting as opposed to we need more space. That's really interesting. I can I can see how you're able to make sure you don't just leap at the proximal ca- cause and you really try to find yeah. the root cause. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we're we're getting close to time here and I you know, one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, you have two young kids. Mm-hmm. They get to watch their mom have this really impactful role. Um, and, you know, I know you you mentioned to me that you've been fascinated watching them start to make real connections between, you know, what they see on TV, what they see in the media, and, and you know, ask questions about what's going on in the real world. And I'm wondering what you think about um, when they get to the to their jobs and the future of their, you know, the future of jobs for them and how will innovation, you know, sort of evolve yet again? I mean, their entire generation is interesting to watch. Um, you know, things that we worry about today is a non-issue. For example, privacy. Privacy doesn't exist in that generation, right? Um, <laughs> so all, some of the things we consider barriers and we spend a lot of time on is no longer going to be the barrier. Um, everything in their world is you know, at their fingertips. Now that said, from a, from when I watch my kids, everything's at their fingertips and that's a good thing and a bad thing. The good thing is, is they're so, they're so comfortable with technology um, and they're so resourceful about finding what they need to find. But what they've done is raise the bar for user experience, which we haven't done yet in healthcare because in their generation, if something takes more than two, three minutes to learn, if they download an app and it's too hard to use, they're finished. It gets deleted. Now, imagine if we did that in healthcare. <laughs> it, <laughs> imagine if we had the notion of deleting, um, the, you know, if it took us more than a few minutes to learn how to use a system, if we held if we held technology and user experience to that bar. Yeah, Epic would have a very different uh, experience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, and I think so. I think that that generation is going to really shift that mindset of instead of asking our people to adapt to systems, we're going to design systems that actually properly enable people. People won't tolerate it anymore. That's great. Thanks so much, Rebecca. This is great. Great discussion. I really um, enjoyed hearing from you today, and as always. Thank you. Today's guest, Rebecca Call, Chief Innovation Officer at MD Anderson, was speaking to us today from Houston. Wow, such an interesting show. I mean, I think what it really brings up is how everyone wants like to have an innovative organization, but how do you sort of how do you actually do it in a way that sort of adds value and isn't sort of either a distraction or or just some or just sort of more you know I guess as they say in Texas more more hat than uh, cattle. <laughs> well, I like her approach to it, which is really to be a facilitator of other people's you know needs and desires and giving them the ownership. Yeah, and giving them ownership and giving them um, process to be successful. Instead of, I think, some folks who are in the innovation field, you know, are the ride-in on the white horse with the flag waving to, to solve everybody's problem, and it rarely works out that way. Yeah, she really sort of seems to have the, uh, the orientation that would allow it to be successful. I was really excited about what she was saying. Yeah. 
So, you can follow David Shaywitz's writing at Forbes and the occasional Wall Street Journal review. And you can follow Lisa's writings at Venture Valkyrie. We are grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. Rock and roll. Take care. Take care.